On episode 30 of the Violence Design Lab podcast, I'm starting a series of style seminars to help you craft the violence that fits the genre of the show you're doing and to deliver the tone you're going for. So outsource and to work with style. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast, putting the science in theatrical violence. Now here's your host, David Barefoot. Greetings, David here. Designing theatrical violence for live theater since 1992 and the mad scientist of the violencedesignlab.com, I'm your virtual coach and online mentor. I'm here to encourage you to improve your stage combat, to coach you to choreograph better fights, and to train you to tackle the challenges of theatrical violence design. I'm also starting a new feature on the podcast I'm calling Question of the Month. I know, original title, because Each month, I'm going to pose a question to my listening audience. I will ask these questions, solicit your feedback, and the following month, I will read some of your answers and give my take on the subject. So the question for the month of September is, what skill did a show you were designing for unexpectedly require that you suddenly had to pick up? I know in my experience, I've had a few occasions where I have accepted a contract for a show, start to design it, and either realize, oh, there's a skill here that this actor needs to present on stage that I don't know, or the director adds something uh, that he wants or she wants, and I don't know that skill, but we have to find a way to get it into the production. Have you had this experience? Let me know uh, and tell me what you did to solve the problem. You can send your responses via email to violencedesignlab at gmail.com. You can either private message me on Facebook and the Violence Design Lab uh, page, or you can, I suppose, leave a comment on the, uh, the wall there. Another great way to send in your response is to record yourself on your phone and send that MP3 file again to violencedesignlab at gmail.com. That way I can get your voice on the podcast and you'd be able to explain in your own words. Again, the question for September is, what skill did a show that you were designing for unexpectedly require that you suddenly had to pick up? So, looking forward to hearing your responses. Send them in. This week, I am starting a seminar uh, series on style. I'll be looking at a variety of stage combat and violent styles and analyzing what makes them tick, what makes them challenging, and what tone they create on the show you're working on. We're starting this week with Hollywood swashbuckling, But in the future, I have planned episodes on gritty realism, uh, historical shows, and comedic or slapstick violence. So that's going to be an exciting series, I think. If you have suggestions on styles you'd like to hear me cover, please, by all means, send me a message. One of the 15 ways of contacting me and let me know and I'd be happy to cover that style. So let's talk about Hollywood swashbuckling. Well, first of all, Let's define the word swashbuckling or swashbuckler. What does it mean? Well, literally, uh, etymologists think that it comes from hitting or swashing uh, against a sword or a weapon against a buckler, a small handheld shield. And that might be it. The definition uh, that currently is in vogue with swashbuckling is to, and I quote from Merriam-Webster, 
engage in daring and romantic adventures with ostentatious bravado or flamboyance. And that's the feeling of the, the Hollywood swashbuckling style that I'm going to be talking about today. So let's look at swash and break it down into the elements that create that style. First of all, it is larger than life. When it comes to the techniques that the fighters are using, they are not tied to any historical martial art or even real-world fighting style. They use big cuts and, and flourishes, you know, spinning the blades around, um, and the, these things that would telegraph attacks unreasonably. If you were to try to do one of these big sword cuts like this in a bout, you wouldn't get halfway through before you'd already um, have a hit scored against you. But they had these big cuts and flourishes. I'm going to be talking a lot about blade work for swashbuckling because, of course, that is its origin. It is talking about sword combat by and large. That is not to say that you can't do uh, swashbuckling uh, with other genres, you certainly can. Uh, a lot of modern action films, much of it can be construed as, as swashbuckling, but it's easiest to talk about it in terms of sword work, so I'm going to basically stay there. So it's larger than life. Even the footwork is big. It's not small little steps. It's these, you know, stage covering uh, sequences of footworks and dramatic lunges and it often includes a lot of stunts, you know, rope swings, vaulting tables, you know, sliding down the tapestry, acrobatic dodges and avoids. Uh, Star Wars, for example, this is basically swashbuckling, Jedis flipping around and throwing things at each other. It all fits right into that. That's one of the reasons that I call it Hollywood swashbuckling is because the movies have really influenced our view of the genre. Not to say that we didn't have this style before uh, the movies came about, but Hollywood really locked that into our public consciousness, especially with the old Errol Flynn and Douglas Fairbanks movies of yesteryear. So, our moves, both our blade work and our footwork, is larger than life. It is also fast. There is a ting, ting, ting back and forth that is a hallmark of the swash style. And in this uh, need to get things quick and lightning fast, speed and fury often trump martial logic. If you take a look, for example, at the uh, famous Princess Bride fight between Wesley and Inigo, at the um, tops of the Cliffs of Insanity. If you analyze a lot of those moves, there's one sequence where there are three attacks into an already closed line. In other words, I believe it's Inigo already um, has... My, no, sorry, Wesley already has uh, a parry and second, or a parry two, just in place. And Inigo advances with three quick wrist cuts to that parry, just ting, 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 hitting the sword. There's no martial logic for this, and no one who was trying to plan out the character's strategic goal could make any sense of that. But what it does is it gives us that musicality of the fight. It gives us the, the attacks in quick succession, and it works. You'll also notice that in service of speed, Swash will often use 
weapons that are lighter than their historical counterparts. Uh, you'll see this on stage especially, we'll use epee blades instead of a full-size rapier blade. Now, if you're using small swords, you're pretty much gold because the historical weapon is that fast. But otherwise, we tend to work away around heavy weapons. Uh, many choreographers who are choreographing longsword fights in a swash style, like, say, a Robin Hood, uh, are using aluminum weapons. Or sometimes they're just using not period-appropriate weapons. If you look at Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, supposedly this is a longsword era, right? It's like 1200, might be even a, an arming sword area. But there is no way you can swing an actual arming sword or a longsword at the rate that uh, Flynn and, and Rathbone are doing. So we modify the weapons to be lighter so that we can get speed. Another hallmark of swash is that perfect form is critical, especially when it comes to the heroes. Even when they are pressed, even when they're in the most desperate situation, they look good doing this. And that is a huge um, takeaway, visual takeaway of the style. It isn't messy. It's not any port in a storm, scrabbling, scratching eyes. It is, everything is precise, targeting is exact, and the form is great. One of the things that helps this, by the way, is distance. Keep your fighters at the longest distance possible from each other. That What that does is that allows you to get big lunges, and it allows the audience to get a better view of the action. You can use leans, where the attacker leans in on the attack and the defender leans back. It helps us show who's attacking or defending, because often the action is so fast, the audience can't otherwise follow the story of what's happening. If your fighters get in too close, they won't be able to, A, keep that speed up, and B, they won't be able to get the really pretty lines that show off that perfect form. So yes, you need to be in distance where they could conceivably make a hit when they're making an attack. You don't want to be so far out that, that there's just no way that touch could ever land. But you want to keep them at the longest distance possible. It'll help you out. Another element of swashbuckling is heroes and mooks. You have the people whose name is the title of the show, like Robin Hood or Zorro, and you have the villain, who is also a hero, quote-unquote, in this, in this uh, designation. Then you have the mooks. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the heroes. Heroes are never seriously threatened by characters that aren't named, that are mooks, that are goons or thugs or soldier number three. It doesn't matter how many mooks are on the stage— the hero is never seriously threatened. In, um, and the hero has a certain attitude. By the way, when I say hero, hero, heroine, it, male, female, that doesn't matter. The, the, the main hero, I'll use that as the sort of uh, gender-neutral um, word for this, is the, the, the person that is our swashbuckling person that we're looking up to. It could be it could be Bess in Fair Maid of the West. It could be Zorro. It doesn't matter. That hero has a very specific attitude. You see, in this genre, fighting is a chance to show off, to show off your perfect form and your cleverness and just how wonderful you are. Heroes, when they're fighting, they bear no particular malice towards the mooks. It's not that they want to kill guards or anything like that. Now, 
they don't have remorse at killing them either. If you watch the um, one of the early scenes of Flynn's Robin Hood, where he first decides to be a traitor against Prince John, and he makes his escape from the castles, they try to close him in. I think he kills like seven or eight guards, nameless guards that are barely a threat to him. They're kind of running into the area, and he is just laying about him with his bow, just murdering people. But we don't we see him with a smile on his face he's not particularly angry at these people but he doesn't have any remorse at killing them either he's got that that swashbuckler smile and that is a that is a huge acting technique for the swashbuckler they have to look like this is fun and also this is pretty easy for me and don't i look good doing it there is a wonderful italian term that I learned uh, from Forteza Fitness in Chicago, which is sprezzatura, which basically means I make this look good, right? I make it look easy. I, I am an amazingly skilled, but it looks effortless. So that swashbuckler smile, that panache, the sprezzatura, that is a very important element of swash. When they are actually in danger, for instance, when they're fighting the villain, there should be moments where they are actually in danger of losing or at least being struck. When that happens, unlike many genres where people would be afraid or you would see them with a, oh, crap, moment, swashbucklers instead have respect for their opponent. Like, oh, that was pretty good. You almost got me there. Or, whoa, I had to actually fight you. I have to pay attention. You're pretty good. They're not afraid, but they have respect when they're in danger. Now let's take a look at the mooks. These mooks are the nameless, personalityless soldiers. They're goons, they're thugs. They exist to make the hero look cool. Okay, they are not a serious threat. They're just an obstacle that the hero has to deal with, but gets to show off how cool they are or how clever they are. Now, these mooks usually fight the hero in twos or threes. Otherwise, it would be hardly sporting, right? And also, when they are killed or wounded, these people die bloodlessly, and they usually go down with a single slash or hit, right? There's no, oh, I stabbed, and I'm limping off, and I'm bleeding, and I'm lying on the ground moaning. No, no, no. Quick slash, they fall down. There's very little blood, if any, in the show. Usually, I don't even see any blood on mooks. They get, you know, stabbed in the stomach. They clutch their stomach, fall over with barely a groan, and that's it. Often, when these uh, mooks are fighting, they're trying to gang up on the hero, but they're often stumbling over each other, trying to attack the hero. It's a big trope that the swashbuckler will use mooks against each other, you know, playing one off the other, using one as a shield, or pushing one into a bunch of them, uh, and tripping them up by getting in each other's way. So the, the hero is always vastly stronger than the mooks. Four of them can do a simultaneous head cut, which the hero will block with a single head parry, and then cast them all off at once as if he could throw off four people and they go stumbling back five or ten feet. Um, this is a standard trope in Swash. So heroes and mooks. So these are the big hallmarks. Larger than life. It's fast. Perfect form is critical. And heroes and mooks. That goes a long way towards giving you the feeling of Hollywood swashbuckling. Now this style is very challenging. First of all, 
there's lots of choreography. When you're fighting really fast, you're burning through moves. That means your actors have to learn maybe 30 moves in that phrase rather than six or eight in what that another genre might require. Also, because of the stunt nature and acrobatic nature of swash fighting, it tends to be very athletic. First of all, the fights tend to be longer. If you look at uh, Anthony ben- Antonio Banderas's um, Mask of Zorro, that final fight goes on and on and on. And if you're doing this on stage, that fight might be two minutes long, which takes a lot of stamina. Okay, And again, form is critical. That means if you have a heroic swashbuckling character, they have to look like they know what they're doing. Yes, obviously you're going to give them choreography that makes them win. That's not the point. The point is they have to look good doing it. So their form is critical. So when you combine lots of choreography with critical, you know, impeccable form, that means it requires extensive rehearsal times. If you're doing Three Musketeers you know that, first of all, you have a lot of choreography to give. There's fights all through that thing, and they have to look good doing it. So it's going to take extensive rehearsal times. Often I found that swash shows require rehearsal time outside of the normal rehearsal time. In other words, not just in the rehearsal process, the normal calendar, but extra time added to the actors just to teach technique and to get their their form up to snuff. Now, the other thing that will affect your design for swash shows is they are very set dependent. In other words, if you're going to do that rope swing or that slide, that zip line slide in or vault over the stair rail, you you are dependent on the set. It has to be um, a certain way. You may sometimes have to pad the set or have breakaway elements of the set or rigging. And what that means is it's difficult to rehearse without those things. So imagine you have a a fancy vault over a table. Well, if you don't have the table, it's very difficult to teach the actors how to do it or to incorporate it smoothly in the fight. So it it requires uh, some coordination with the set designer, with the props people, uh, also possibly with costumes if there's cloaks involved or big hats or fighting in uh, dress wigs. It requires some more coordination with the production team to make sure the fights can take advantage of all the opportunities that the set can afford and the costumes and props, but it requires you to coordinate ahead of time to set up times to rehearse with these elements so that the actors are ready to go. Now, what tone does Swash create? Well, Obviously, fun. Fun and excitement. It is just a great style to watch for escapism. Uh, people are just swinging swords, and they're, you know, usually there's music underscoring, and everything feels very heroic, and it's fun, and it is a great way to escape from the world for a while. But the other thing that it does is Swash normally carries a lack of of emotional consequences of violence. For example, like I mentioned before, there's almost no stage blood used in Swash, or very little. Sometimes for very important characters, we will see a little bit of blood, but often we won't see any at all. There is almost no suffering. 
uh, that we see on stage. People die, they may groan a bit, clutch their, their chest, and they'll fall over. You might have the occasional poignant last words, but we don't see people maimed and hobbling and, and dealing with these permanent injuries. There's no PTSD, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's no guilt. People are killing each other. And when you stop and think of it, you're like, wait a minute. Zorro just murdered six guards that really pose no threat to him. Or he just, you know, ha ha ha, I slashed a Z in someone's face. Well, that's a permanent scar that is going to affect that person for the rest of their life. But we don't care. There's no guilt. There's no emotional uh, consequences there. Part of the reason I think that there's not as many emotional consequences is because we have very clear delineations between hero and villain, between good and evil. There's not a lot of gray in classic swashbuckling. Someone is either on the side of good and right, and even if the, quote, society considers them an outlaw. That happens a lot with Scarlet Pimpernel or Zorro or Robin Hood. We know that person's heart is right, and they are a true blue hero with the heart of gold. And the villains, on the other hand, tend to be irredeemable. They are grasping. They're greedy. They are selfish. They are sadistic. There's not a lot of gray areas where you say, well, yes, the sheriff did that, but he had a pretty good reason on why that was a reasonable course of action. It's not like that. We have good and bad, you know, good and evil, hero, villain, very clear black and white separations. This also tends to make swashbuckling very family-friendly because it's not realistic. It doesn't feel like real violence. It feels like fun. It feels like Saturday morning cartoons. I can show my 10-year-old daughter Flynn's Robin Hood, and I don't worry about her having nightmares, even though he shoots people, because it just doesn't feel real. It lacks the emotional weight. And that's great if that's what you're going for. Now, if you are an ongoing listener to this podcast, you might think that I hate swashbuckling. Okay, I talk about all the time about how it's not my style, it's not the way that uh, I tend to choreograph. So you might think that I hate Hollywood swashbuckling, but this is actually not true. In fact, I am teaching a class, Hollywood sword fighting, starting next week uh, out here in uh, Vancouver, Washington. I don't hate the genre. In fact, I really like it. What I hate is the idea that swashbuckling is the for lack of a better term, the default style of a lot of mainstream American stage combat. Too often, I see actors learning what is essentially a watered-down swash technique as the default or standard technique for sword work that they learn. Then, if those same people go on to choreograph later, they sometimes use those larger-than-life life uh, moves. They use the, the two light weapons and the two perfect technique to try to design fights for realistic or historical shows. And to me, it just screams choreography. And it really breaks the emotional weight of the scene when I see this essentially Errol Flynn stage combat in the middle of an otherwise serious show. So, But there's a lot of shows out there, though, where swash is the right style. If I were to 
take on the court jester, for example, the classic movie with Basil Rathbone and, and Danny Kaye, and I put that in a realistic style, that would be completely weird, completely incongruous to the show. It would totally create the wrong tone. Swash is the right style for that. So the takeaway here for me is recognize that Swash is a distinct style and decide consciously when you can use it for best effect and, hey, have fun being Errol Flynn. Hey, listen, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I really appreciate if you would swing by iTunes and click on uh, the rating stars and leave a review for me. The reviews do help move us up the ranking and help others uh, find it. Uh, you can also find the lab on Facebook at facebook.com slash violence lab. And please, again, answer the question of the month. Um, what skill did a show you were working on uh, require unexpectedly that you had to learn? Uh, let me know. Give me uh, constructive criticisms, questions, topic suggestions, all that kind of good stuff. Email me at violencedesignlab at gmail.com. Well, once again, thanks for uh, joining me this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com. 